The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, just months after former officer Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd, we're back in that same courtroom with another officer-involved death trial. This time, it's Kim Potter, who mistakenly pulled her gun instead of her taser while trying to take Dante Wright into custody. Court TV's Julie Janae is on the scene and will give us a full update of the trial so far. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV Podcast. This episode is going to be, I think, fascinating because it's rare in one year on Court TV that you go back to the same courtroom for two different trials. I mean, think about how many courthouses there are across the country, how many judges and how many courtrooms in, in, in all these courthouses and jurisdictions. And I don't know if this is, maybe it has happened before uh, on Court TV, but never to this level with such high profile cases. And you know, we covered uh, uh, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the man who was convicted of murdering George Floyd. That happened in Hennepin County, Minnesota. And in the middle of his trial, there was a police shooting in Hennepin County, Minnesota. And now the former officer who shot and killed Dante Wright, a motorist, her name is Kim Potter, the former officer. She is now on trial in Hennepin County, in the same courthouse, in the same courtroom. Unbelievable. So what do we do at Court TV? We're going to send the same incredible team of journalists back out to Minnesota to cover this. And uh, joining me now is Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae, who was in Hennepin County for the trial of Derek Chauvin and is now back out there for the trial of Kim Potter. Julia, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know your time is limited. You are busy. You're in the middle of your coverage on television. But let me ask you, do a quick comparison for us in, in, in what is happening um, in the same courtroom, in the same courthouse for this trial, as opposed to the prior trial of Derek Chauvin. And, and what I'll establish off the top is this is the case of Kim Potter, who approaches um, Dante Wright, who is resisting arrest and, and attempting to get away from police after a motor vehicle stop. She yells, taser, taser, taser fires the weapon in her hand, but it's not a taser. It was her service weapon. She's been charged with manslaughter. Go ahead, Julia. Describe for us the the, the similarities and or differences in what's happening in Hennepin County. Vinny, good to be with you. So many similarities. It's like deja vu being back here, being inside the courtroom. Outside of the courthouse is the most uh, noticeable difference, but going to the similarities, we're of course in the same Hennepin County Government Center. It's on the 18th floor again, where we're holding this court. It's in the biggest courtroom inside of that building. And though we have a different judge, being inside that courtroom, the setup is the 
same. It's this new normal that we're used to with the COVID-19 guidelines. You've got the same prosecution team that is handling this case. It's not the Hennepin County Attorney's Office. It's the Attorney General's Office who stepped in on this one the same way they did on the Derek Chauvin case. So prosecutor Matthew Frank, Aaron Eldridge, Joshua Larson, those are familiar faces that we saw uh, examining the witnesses during the Derek Chauvin trial. And even the defense team has a familiar look to it because Earl Gray, the uh, defense attorney, lead defense attorney for Kim Potter, he represents Thomas Lane, who was one of the co-defendants of Derek Chauvin, who would have been on trial with him if the case had not been severed. And we know that Thomas Lane's case is still pending for March of next year. Uh, that's outside of the inside the courthouse, but outside, uh, it's a lot different. The security is different than we saw back during the Chauvin trial. We don't have the National Guard or three layers of barbed wire and concrete barriers. And the protests are uh, not as intense. We are seeing people here who are demanding justice for Dante Wright, but not in the numbers that we saw during Chauvin. Uh, but we are seeing snow on the ground again. It was early spring when we were here for Chauvin, and now we're here in winter. So still some chilly temperatures for people who are outside. Now, the charges in this case, manslaughter, um, it, it seems to me the entire thing is caught on video like the the Derek Chauvin case. Uh, there are three different body cams that are there. There's a dash cam video of everything that happens. It all transpires within within a minute or so, and we see what happens, but it doesn't seemed to me that there's much in dispute in terms of, of facts of this case. There's not as much of a factual dispute, or it seems like it's more of an opinion dispute about what these facts mean. So the, the shooting, no one is alleging that this was done on purpose, right? I mean, both sides are conceding. It's, she, she meant to use her taser, but at the end of the day, Prosecutors believe that mistake is a crime and the defense is saying, no, it's not a crime. Exactly. There's also not the causation issue. No one is saying that her gun did not kill Dante Wright. Uh, the issue is whether or not when she pulled her taser, her gun instead of her taser, whether that was culpable negligence, whether that was reckless in nature enough to qualify for second degree manslaughter or first degree manslaughter, respectively. Uh, so you have a question of what, like you said, these facts mean. And we're going through that body camera footage frame by frame for this jury to try and get experts and non-experts to weigh in on what does each moment of this incident mean and what was the policy at the time that Potter should have been trained on and should have been taken into consideration. So now prosecutors in this case have taken a trial that I looked at initially and I thought, OK, yeah, this this will be done in a few days. It's it doesn't seem that complicated. It, it seems like it's a difficult case for both sides because when does uh, behavior that is not intentional become a crime? But how is it that this is a, a trial that is taking weeks instead of days on on a situation that um, happened very quickly within a within a minute or so, 
And there's there's very little that is being disputed factually about what happened here. The state is being really meticulous in the way that they are presenting this case to the jury. They're walking them through it. They started with some really compelling witnesses in calling the mother of Dante Wright to the stand as their first witness. Someone who talked about the loss of her son, what she experienced not only uh, when her son was killed and when he was pulled over, but also when his body was left on the ground for many hours and she was there watching this investigation unfold, but also the girlfriend of Dante Wright. She was a passenger. She was able to talk about this car crash that came after the shooting and killing of Wright that she was involved in. And then they called in other people who were hurt in that car crash. Uh, So they've really walked them through uh, the outlying issues of this incident, not just the shooting, not just the pulling of one weapon versus the other, but they're taking them through the investigation, taking them through every officer who's responded on the scene. And I think that's really giving this jury a lot to think about, but they will also have to drill down what is most important when looking at that verdict form. You mentioned Dante Wright's uh, mother. Let's take a listen to part of her testimony. And so after you had this initial conversation with your son, Dante, about wanting to talk to the officers, what happened after that? Um, I heard the police officer come back up to the window and asked, he asked Dante to step out of the vehicle. And Dante asked, for what? Am I in trouble? And I heard the officer say, I need you to just put the phone down, step out of the vehicle, and I'll let you know as soon as you step out of the vehicle. And then at that time, um, I heard the phone either being placed on an object, whether it was you know dropped on the floor or placed on the dash, I'm not sure, but I could hear the phone being put down. And then I heard... I heard the officer telling Dante, no. Um, and I heard Dante say, no, I'm not. Don't, it sounded like he said, don't run. Dante said, no, I'm not. And then I heard them say, somebody tell somebody to hang up the phone. And then that's all I heard. Did the phone disconnect? It did. Emotional testimony. She's actually on the phone with her son when he's pulled over. So she's an ear witness to to the initial um, interaction with police. She is. He called her. He was pulled over and his first reaction was to call his mom to let her know what was happening and see what he should do next. Uh, Heartbreaking testimony from her vantage point, uh, ultimately then calling back multiple times and then using a video chat function, trying to reach her son and his girlfriend, picked up the phone and turned it around to show uh, Katie Bryant what her son looked like, essentially dying there inside of the car. I've been inside the courtroom where she is sitting there in one of those limited seats for family. And she she cries during a lot of this testimony. She's clutching items in her hand uh, to try and distract herself from what she's seeing. But the jury is taking note of her sitting there and having an emotional reaction to a lot of this evidence. Now, uh, on the scene, there are three officers, um, Kim Potter, 
a supervising officer, Johnson. We'll talk about him in just a moment. But then there's uh, Officer Lucky, who's who's being trained by Kim Potter, and he's the one who makes the initial contact with Dante Wright. I want to take a listen to a little piece of his testimony, uh, because this gets to the heart, ultimately, of what this case is about. Potter, Officer Potter, yells, taser, taser, taser. That's easily heard, isn't that right? Yes. That's consistent with the training you have received for tasers. Yes. Right? <clears throat> it tells everybody what's going to happen, right? Yes. And when she says taser, 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 does he stop? No. He just keeps going. Yes. And then the shot is fired. Yes. So this is really what the trial ultimately is about. She's yelling taser, 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 but she has her gun in her hand. And, and I think for, for most people, this is the, the part they don't understand because a, a taser, there, there are big differences between a taser and a gun. And uh, prosecutors pointed this out in their, in their case. Yeah, there's major differences. There's a weight difference between one and the other. The Glock, the nine millimeter Glock that she had was two pounds versus one pound. The taser is bright yellow in color. It's got a flat trigger versus the curved trigger of the handgun. Uh, there's even a, a safety feature that you have to physically turn on, switch on, that's external on the taser. And it shows a green laser light that would show up on whatever your target is for that taser. Those things don't exist for the handgun. So it really difficult to understand why with all of these safety precautions that are in place to avoid situations like that, and that Potter did not notice them. Unbelievable. It's a case unlike any other. But for prosecutors, it, it's been a bit of a rough go. And that's because of the testimony of Officer Johnson, the supervising officer at the scene. It is um, testimony that, that gave this trial an unexpected turn. And I don't know if prosecutors can recover from it. Uh, we're going to take a look at that uh, when we come back. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So basically, based on these videos and the conduct of Dante Wright, as far as you're concerned, and you were there, Kimberly Potter would have, would have had a right to use a firearm, right? Yes. That is a moment that I was not expecting inside the courtroom. That is a prosecution witness, the supervising officer at the scene of the shooting of Dante Wright. And he is testifying in front of the jury, not about, can you use a taser? Not about an accident. He is testifying that based upon all the circumstances that were happening at the scene, the use of deadly force by Kim Potter was justified. I, this was a case that was supposed to be, is it an accident? Um, yes. Is it an accident that is so egregious that it's a crime? Well, that's what the jury had to decide. But now this jury has something else to think about. 
which is, okay, was this, uh, was this such an egregious accident that it was a crime? Or, in the alternative, based upon the circumstances, despite the fact that it was an accident, was the shooting and use of deadly force still justified under the circumstances? It's really a bizarre twist. Absolutely bizarre twist, but it was a prosecution witness. It was the supervising, uh, the, the supervising officer at the scene. And it clearly, clearly, after this happened on cross-examination, sent prosecutors scrambling. So let's bring back in Court TV legal correspondent Julie Janae. Am I underselling this, overselling this moment um, and, and the reaction of prosecutors? No, Vinny, it was pivotal. It was bizarre. Uh, it almost went to, well, if Kim Potter uh, believed that she needed to use her taser, no one was thinking about whether or not it would be justified to have used a gun in this situation. It hadn't been mentioned in this trial, but he did say this. This is Major Johnson, who was there on the scene on the other side of the vehicle, and you could tell that the state was clamoring to recover because the next business day, which would have been Monday, that happened on a Friday, they filed two motions. And one of those was to preclude, to stop the defense from being able to elicit any kind of expert opinion from lay witnesses. Uh, they were saying that Michael Johnson was a lay witness and he should not have been able to testify that use of force was justified by statute because that was a conclusion for the jury to make. That should be an expert opinion from a use of force expert. Uh, but today that was denied by the judge. So uh, the defense was well within their bounds to ask those questions and to get that out of a law enforcement witness on the stand. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's really unbelievable. But even, you know, regardless of what you think about the legal arguments, just the fact that prosecutors are trying to strike the testimony of one of their own witnesses in and of itself is is problematic. You know, I was a prosecutor and you want your cases to be very clean and you don't want to have the appearance that you're trying to prevent the jury from hearing any of the evidence. We usually leave that up to the defense attorneys to try to keep evidence out of the courtroom. Um, whether it's proper evidence or not, I was shocked that they didn't object at the time, but they didn't and it got in. Uh, the judge is now uh, allowing it. And this points out, I think, another big difference, Julia, between this case and Derek Chauvin's case. In Derek Chauvin's case, um, you know, I have police officers on my show every night and there were no police officers coming on my show um, justifying the use of force by Derek Chauvin on George Floyd. No one, nobody. And, and in this case, and it happened in the courtroom as well, right? You had members of the Minneapolis police department who were saying what Chauvin did was wrong, which was, wow, this is really unusual. But under those circumstances, prosecutors were using those, those officers, supervisors, et cetera, to talk about Chauvin. But here, this is much more along the lines of, of the classic um, police officer on trial case where, you know, it's kind of in the gray area. You know, police officers uh, may see it one way. Um, some and some people may see it another way. Uh, but but it's going to be difficult to have officers say what Kim Potter did was wrong and not justified under the circumstances, including now the supervising officer from the scene itself. 
Yeah, I can remember in the Derek Chauvin trial, one by one, police officers with the Minneapolis Police Department coming in uh, fully in their uniforms. You had Chief Arandondo coming in, and they all said in their testimony that was elicited by these same prosecutors uh, where they didn't feel that a knee on the neck for eight plus minutes was reasonable, that nothing in their training suggested that that was okay. And these prosecutors were okay with that kind of testimony coming in because it supported their position. Here we have law enforcement officers who are coming in and they're not being very clear about whether or not uh, using a taser, which we're saying that because the prosecution is also arguing that a taser should not have been used. So even if she made a mistake and it was an accident that she should not have gone the route of using that type of force. But you had Anthony Lucky, the officer who was being trained by Potter, uh, saying that he would have used a taser in that situation. So a lot of these officers who have come in really haven't jived with what the prosecution's case is. Uh, but the worst has been, of course, Michael Johnson taking the stand and saying a firearm would have made sense. And another a comparison, a similarity between Chauvin and Potter, they were both field training officers for the younger officers who were there. Chauvin had been the field training officer for Alexander King, who was next to him on George Floyd's body. And Anthony Lucky was being trained by Potter in that moment. So in, in the Chauvin trial, because I think it's such an important uh, comparison here, you had um, all the officers coming in saying it wasn't proper. You had the use of force experts come in and say it wasn't proper what Chauvin did. The only person in the courtroom who said it was arguably okay was the expert that was hired by Chauvin. And, and you know, so you had one versus many. In this trial, are we going to have the 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 inverse where officers are going to say, yeah, the use of force taser was 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 appropriate. And you're going to have one lone expert that the prosecution is going to use that's going to say it wasn't proper. And then you're going to have uh, an expert on the other side who's going to say, yeah, it was proper. I don't know that it's necessarily going to be all versus one. Uh, there are Bureau of Criminal Apprehension investigators who did look at this as an officer-involved shooting. They're the state body here in Minnesota who take over and come in when there's a case that may be a conflict for police to investigate at the local level. So some of them have gotten close. They talked about the conduct, the ethics, the policy there in Brooklyn Center uh, where you aren't supposed to fire a taser in a vehicle, someone is operating a vehicle. There's an argument over whether Dante Wright was actually operating the vehicle at the time or whether it was stopped. Uh, but I, I don't think it's going to be as stark as it was in Chauvin, uh, but I do not think it is looking at all the way it did where you had all of the officers coming in against the defendant. Uh, here, you have either officers saying that they would have done the same thing as Kim Potter, or uh, they don't really get specific about her conduct being criminal. And the, and the basis of all of this is that you've got Johnson leaning in the passenger side, and he's trying to uh, prevent Dante Wright from escaping and engaging the car into in drive and, and driving away. And you've got um, Potter and Lucky on the other side of the car. And it seems what the defense is going to argue and what Johnson is saying and, and, and what the other officers are saying is 
Johnson himself would have been in danger of great bodily harm or death if Dante Wright took control of the vehicle and drove away, which was the reason behind her attempting to use a taser, but ultimately using deadly force, but also the reason from Johnson's perspective, from his testimony, that she was entitled to use deadly force at that moment as well to save him. You know, prosecutors had to know that Major Johnson was going to take the stand and say that because we hear him in the body camera footage when Kim Potter is hysterical on the ground, seeming to be distraught over this fatal mistake that she has made. He tells her it's OK. She says, I'm, I'm going to go to prison. He says, no, you're not. That guy was trying to drive off with me in the car. So he's telling her her defense there at the scene. And then he gets on the witness stand. He doesn't say it that clear, but his body cam says it for him. And then on cross, when he's asked whether he believes it was justified, he agrees and he keeps with what he told her trying to console her. And how much does the jury know about uh, Dante Wright? Because he is, you know, at this point you see him at the moment, they say he has a warrant. He, he run, gets back, gets back into the car and is trying to get away. Um, how much do they know about what that warrant was for and, and anything else that he has done in his past? Because that can certainly uh, impact the way jurors see the scene and, and what's transpiring there. They will know what he had the warrant for that day because it goes to what Kim Potter knew about him in the moment. The reason we see in other trials where prior criminal history doesn't come in is because usually the shooter or the person who is creating the dangerous situation, they don't know about those prior things. It's just something that the defense attorney is trying to bring in to show the bad character of the victim. But in this case, Potter was aware of this warrant that was outstanding for a gross a misdemeanor weapons charge and the fact that there was a restraining order out uh, and that was the reason that uh, Michael Johnson was checking to see who Dante Wright's passenger was to see if she may have been the subject of that restraining order. Uh, so they are going to know that limited amount. They won't know any prior um, arrest history of Wright. He was involved in uh, a robbery. That is not something that they will be privy to. That's something that the judge ruled on early on that won't be coming in. Not an easy case for prosecutors or the defense and ultimately a tough call for the jury. But Court TV cameras will bring you everything. Julia Janae, I know you have to run. Appreciate your time and, and I'll see you on the air. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vinny. Okay, folks. So when we come back, there is a heated, heated discussion on social media about this case. And there's one aspect of it that I need to address, and I will do that next. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. So the discussion of Kim Potter's case on social media inevitably comes down to this. People say, how can you not tell the difference between a gun and a taser? A taser's yellow, a gun is black, a gun is heavier, your gun's on the right side. 
How do you not know the difference? And then there is a huge portion of the audience who takes it one step further and says, oh, she knew she had a gun in her hand. The whole taser, 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 that was a cover. She just wanted to kill him. She wanted to murder him. She did murder him. And that is the way a lot of people see this case. And you're entitled to see it however you want to see it. Uh, what I would like to do, though, is, is address that issue and how it's being handled inside the courtroom. Because I think it's important. Because the one thing we know about this set of prosecutors, the Attorney General's office in Minnesota, is that they are aggressive, super aggressive prosecutors. They will charge the highest crime that they believe that they can prove. They are not afraid to go after police officers. They've gone after Derek Chauvin. They've gone after the other three just as hard. And here they went after uh, Kim Potter. But what they didn't do, what they didn't do was charge her with murder. And that was on purpose. And that was actually addressed by the prosecutor in her opening statement. And she made it very clear that it is not their intention to allege that she did this on purpose shooting him with her service weapon. They are conceding the fact that it was a mistake, a criminal mistake, but a mistake nonetheless. But I'm telling you, I don't know what the percentage is, whether it's 20%, 30%, and uh, some posts it's 50% of the people who are saying this was murder. She did it on purpose. There's no way she couldn't tell the difference. Well, prosecutors aren't even alleging that. And if there was any evidence of murder, trust me, this team of prosecutors would bring the murder charges because they will bring the, the highest charges that they believe they have a chance of proving. And based upon the video, the evidence, the investigation, everything else, they know there is no chance of proving murder here based upon what Kim Potter said and, and how she reacted. Now, she said, taser, taser, taser. I'll tase you. I tase you. Taser, taser, taser. She says that the whole time. She's holding her gun the whole time, but she's saying, taser, taser, taser. Then when she fires the weapon, she fires once. And what came out on cross-examination is that a part of your training as an officer is you, you, you don't fire once. You fire at least twice. Squeeze the trigger twice when you're using deadly force. That didn't happen. When you fire a taser, you fire once. So that's consistent with her story of taser, taser, taser. Then you see and hear her reaction on video. The, the, the shock, the disbelief, the level of regret. I would say remorse, but some people don't agree that they see remorse there. That's fine. But you can tell. I mean, anyone who, who watches human behavior can tell by her reaction that she did not intend to use her gun. She made an incredibly tragic, potentially criminal mistake. She did not commit murder. She's not accused of murder. And prosecutors have, have said that. As a matter of fact, prosecutors are now using that or attempting to use that to their advantage in that they do not have to prove intent. Proving intent is a big part of a murder case. You don't accidentally murder someone. You have to intentionally murder someone. Intent is an element. And, and almost 
I don't know. I think almost every crime is 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 you talk about the mens rea, the state of mind of the defendant, and for most crimes, it's the intentional act, and that's not part of this case. We're in a different world, and and prosecutors have said so, and prosecutors have said so because it's based upon the actual evidence in the case. So everyone on social media who is who was saying murder, murder, murder. You can have your own view of the, of the trial, of the evidence that you want, but just understand that it's not part of this case. Never was, never will be. It's not an allegation. It's nothing that the jury will consider. But that does leave us in a, in a strange place because I agree with many of the people who are like, how can you confuse that? I don't understand how you can confuse that. And the jury's going to have to grapple with that. Like, how do you confuse your gun with your taser? I don't understand how you could do that. One is half a pound. The other is two pounds. The grip feels different. One is yellow. One is black. One you keep on your left side, and you have to draw with your left hand because of the way it's situated in your holster. You can't cross-draw it with your right hand. You have to actually take it out with your left hand. But as you watch the video, as she's talking before she draws the weapon, she has her hand on that side. And what is it? Is it muscle memory from, from years of training with a gun and not training as much with a taser? What is going on? Is, is, is she confused because she doesn't, she's, she gets caught in the moment? She loses composure? Well, I think all of that's true, right? She, she makes this horrendous, horrendous mistake, but it's not a, it's not purposeful conduct. She didn't pull out her gun and say, I'm going to murder Dante Wright, but I'm going to yell taser, 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 because then I won't get charged with murder. First of all, that's ridiculous. That's Why would someone 26 years on the force even risk it? Why, why, why? Because somebody's got a warrant out and they're trying to get away. I think that happens, uh, you know, it's pretty common and it's getting more common these days. The people are trying to flee. As a matter of fact, Dante Wright had done that in the past. Last time uh, they attempted to arrest him, he fled. That's, that's led to some of his additional uh, problems with the law. But this case is about the level of recklessness, culpable negligence that Kim Potter exercised that day. That's what the jury has to decide. But everything got much more complicated once Major Johnson testified that the use of deadly force was uh, also justified under those circumstances. I think all it does is it adds a second defense to the defense. So they can argue accident, not rising to the level of culpable negligence. And then they can also argue, even if you believe, even if you believe that she was, was negligent, or culpably negligent in pulling out that gun instead of the taser, she was justified in pulling out that gun because under Minnesota law, that was justifiable use of deadly force. It's it's a strange case. Uh, but make sure you're watching Court TV so you can see how the whole thing turns out. Gavel-to-gavel gavel coverage. Uh, we are on television, folks. We're not just a podcast. If you have a digital antenna, please rescan it. Check the show notes here for links to uh, parts of our coverage so you have a little bit more background and you can see uh, what people testified to, what they said. And then, of course, you can go to CourtTV.com 
and uh, check the tab on where to find us so you can find us wherever you live in whatever your system of delivery of television is these days. Um, that's it for now. I am Vinny Politan. This is our final podcast of the year. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We'll be back in 2022. We've got an incredible um, docket of trials that are scheduled to go. The COVID shutdown for that year really built up this, this backlog of cases and, and they're coming one after another after another. And you'll see them all on your front row seat to justice and you'll hear our analysis here on the Court TV podcast. Have a great holiday season, whatever you uh, celebrate. Also, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.